Hello, everyone. You're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Jason Creekmore and Shannon Deaton. Welcome to the show. In today's episode, we are going to take a closer look at the development of the arcade industry. Sitting across from me is my partner and a man who I believe has probably spent some quarters in his past on some of these games. So, Shannon Deaton, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic, Jason. I have a pocket full of quarters, and I'm ready to relive the glory days, my friend. <laughs> that, that sounds awesome. We're <laughs> going to talk about some of those glory days. Uh, Shannon, when I was a child, there were two things that brought joy to my heart, unlike any other uh, items or things. Uh, those were snow days yep. and arcades. Absolutely. And on the rare occasion that I would get a snow day and then my parents would take me to the arcade, it was like life just aligned perfectly. <laughs> there was uh, rainbows and unicorns yeah. and I was just living life. Pizza and Pac-Man. Pizza and Pac-Man. That, that's, <laughs> that's exactly great. right. So arcades are a really cool thing uh, and they have a, a really cool history. The development of the arcade industry is certainly an interesting one. Uh, in fact, arcades can be traced back to the 1920s and 30s. During this time, carnivals and fairs would set up across the country, and pretty much all of them featured games. Now, not the kinds of games we think of when we think of arcades today with the electronics, but, right. but there were bit, games. A little bit different back then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. These games included a ball toss and shooting galleries, most often, as well as skee-ball. In the 1930s, the first coin-operated pinball machine was manufactured, although it looked nothing like today's pinball machines. Uh, these early machines had wooden frames and kept score mechanically, not electronically. In fact, there were no lights and sounds at all. Nevertheless, people began to spend money on this form of entertainment. These types of early games eventually evolved into the arcades that we think of today, although it would take a few decades. Yeah, I love pinball. Uh, it, it's something that I'm terrible at. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm, I'm horrible, but I love it. I like the idea of it, just the flashing yeah. lights, the the game experience itself. It's a ton of fun, but man, oh man, you have to come in there with a paycheck to be able yeah. to, to do anything. One, yeah, one of my friends growing up, uh, they had a cabin uh, down on the lake, and they had a, uh, a a Star Wars pinball machine in there. Oh, wow. And of course, it was fixed in a way that you just pushed a button and you just could play all day. It didn't really even accept quarters, you know, oh, at yeah. that point. Uh, so I got uh, addicted to pinball uh, you know, d during those times, and I love it. That sounds like a dream. But I'm horrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, so as time went on, you know, these games become, you know, they uh, started to become more sophisticated. And there were a few major games produced by the late 60s that really set the stage for arcades to flourish. Uh, the game Periscope came out in 1966. Grand Prix, of course, the driving game in oh, 1969, yeah. and then the game titled Missile, also in 1969. An interesting note, uh, Missile was the first game to feature a joystick and a separate button to shoot or fire. Oh, wow. Somebody was a trendsetter then. That's exactly right. You know, I can imagine that person saying, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's <laughs> right. put a separate button on the side. We're going to make it red. And, when you know, and whenever <laughs> we want them to shoot the missile, <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. going to push that button. And, and teenagers from the future rejoiced. <laughs> <laughs> and people would podcast forever more right. about that. Yeah, that's, that's, right. that's right. So, you know, these, these games would gain in popularity throughout the 70s. Uh, but in 1978... A game called Space Invaders was released, and the modern arcade was born. That was sort of the birth date 
of the modern arcade, what we think of is when Space Invaders was released. Yeah, people were obsessed with space and just a few. I mean, that was, uh, you know, about nine years after we landed on the moon, right? Right. In 1969. Or so they say. Or, or so they say. Check out our other episode on conspiracy theories. <laughs> That's right. From outer space for more information. But yeah, man, Space Invaders was a, a big deal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. By the 1980s, there were a flood of games that hit the market. Uh, some of these included Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, Galaga, Pole Position, Super Mario Brothers, Double Dragon, Street Fighter, plus dozens more. And Shannon, I can personally attest that I helped support all these games yeah. <laughs> growing up in the 80s. They probably all got anywhere between five and ten bucks and quarters from me apiece right. you know, at some point. And just to give you some numbers and some idea on how popular the arcades became, that in, in the 80s, early 80s, by 1981, the arcade industry was worth $8 billion. Wow. And it would continue to climb until the late 80s when many people began purchasing video game consoles uh, such as Nintendo and Sega. And of course, I was oh, yeah. I was guilty of this as I was one myself. of those kids. And the, uh, the video game console affected the arcade industry so much that by 1991, the industry's worth had dropped to $2 billion. So literally in 10 years, uh, or actually less than 10 years, it went from over $8 billion in, to almost overnight, seemingly, in terms of uh, a timeline for industries, had dropped down to $2 billion. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of those invading technologies, I guess, because in, in just a decade, you see the arcade cabinets flourishing because there's no other way to get that form of entertainment. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the introduction of the Nintendo Entertainment System. And there were a few before that, but that one was really, for me at least, the one that really was the tipping point. And there was no going back. It was like, oh, I can have this in my house? Yes, please. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. Because before then, obviously, you had you had to go to, like a, a you know, obviously an arcade or a restaurant or something like that that had the arcade games in them. And then all of a sudden, you know, seemingly overnight, they're underneath everyone's Christmas tree. That's right. And yeah. you have your personal arcade there. Yeah. So, obviously, we know that the 80s, especially the early to, to mid-80s, was the decade for arcades. But time would go on. So, Shannon, can you tell us a little bit about what happened to the fate of arcades in the 90s? I can. So, uh, you know, some of the sales were dwindling, like you mentioned, toward the end of the 80s. But in the early 90s, arcades experienced a major resurgence, especially in 1991. There was a pivotal game released around that time, one that I certainly remember with a lot of fondness and that video game was Capcom Street Fighter 2. Oh yeah. You couldn't go anywhere Jason without seeing this. It was at Walmart, it was at the grocery store, of course it was in arcades, it was at Pizza Hut. <laughs> you know, anybody who had a, a claim to having an arcade in their building, man, they better have Street Fighter. That was just <laughs> the right. game at that's the what, time. That's what the kids wanted. <laughs> that's what they that's what they demanded. Uh, Street Fighter's popularity revived the arcade industry in a way that had really not been seen since Pac-Man. And I remember how popular Pac-Man was, of course, around the country. I think they called it Pac-Mania. I mean, oh, just yeah. everybody was playing video games back in, uh, at this time. And Street Fighter really had a similar effect when it came out. So new machines were created, mostly in the fighting genre, to mimic Street Fighter. Some of those games included Pit Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Virtua Fighter, Killer Instinct, Tekken, and others. I mean, there was no <laughs> shortage of martial arts fighting clones just everywhere. That's right. Just all over the place. Someone's getting punched. Someone is getting punched. <laughs> they're getting kicked. And oftentimes, I just remember I, I would walk by one of these machines, and I don't know if they all had sensors. Some of them definitely did, though. They would be completely <laughs> silent. I'd walk by, and all of a sudden, it's like, fight. 
<laughs> you know, it just it's a way to draw you in to, to the arcade experience. And uh, that was actually intentional. Many arcades had something called attract mode. And it was literally a feature that was built into the game where the machine would come on, it would light up, it would start yelling out things at you, you know, uh, to entice the player to, to come drop those quarters. You know? <laughs> it's like, get over here. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I'm, I'm guilty. I, I got over there. <laughs> Absolutely. Times. So in 1993, a company called Electronic Games noted that when historians look back on the world of arcades in the early 90s, one of the defining highlights will be the focus on fighting and martial arts themes. And when I think of arcades, uh, you know, outside of the ones that you mentioned, those early, early arcade games, really what comes to mind are two things, racing games. I see a lot of those in in my memories uh, and fighting games. That seems to be the the big two outside of those uh, very early, early games. So home consoles during the 90s were finally beginning to compete on a technological level with arcade machines in the mid-90s. So as you mentioned, the arcade was the only place to get this experience at one time, right? You had to go in, you had to drop your quarters, $10 worth, and you had to stand around while everybody watched you get punched in the face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All yeah. These they would laugh and jump around you. Yeah. And, you know, oh, I could do better than that. It was and, exciting. Yeah. yeah. I remember um, in, in some places it was a custom that if you had the next game, you would just kind of put your quarter on the face of the machine. <laughs> you know, even uh, you might be sitting there yourself right. playing Street Fighter and then somebody just comes up, slams a quarter down. I got next game. <laughs> it's like a placeholder, right? <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, by 1994, arcades were generating about $7 billion in quarters, which adjusted for inflation. Uh, that is the equivalent of $11.8 billion in 2018, if you were to adjust it by last year's numbers. And oh, home consoles were generating about $6 billion. So at this time, they were right on the hills. You know, we had the, the NES. I think the Super Nintendo was on its way. And many home consoles produced during this time were ports of arcade games. And the graphics weren't as good. The sound wasn't as good. So this accounted for some of the resurgence of the arcade because still yet, even though some of these games were being ported over to consoles, and yes, you could play Street Fighter you know, on your couch <laughs> in your pajamas, the best experience for playing Street Fighter, you know, where the real men played. That's right. <laughs> would be at the arcade. <laughs> yeah. I'll meet you there and bring your quarter. That's right. <laughs> I'll see you there at noon. That's right. Punk. <laughs> yeah. So around the mid-1990s, this is when the fifth generation home consoles appeared on the market. We're talking about things such as the Sega Saturn, the PlayStation, the Nintendo 64. And for the first time, the home console experience started to feel a whole lot like the arcade experience. These consoles offered true 3D graphics, improved sound, better 2D graphics. The advantage that arcades had over home consoles started to narrow a little bit, and arcades began losing business to home consoles, which were much more convenient. You know, it's hard to bring the arcade experience into your home (laughs) completely, you know, invite over 20 friends, have a roll of quarters each, you know, and, and plug in and let's play some Mortal combat you know it didn't work as well with (laughs) the arcade uh, but certainly with the home consoles it it really brought it uh, to life and it brought it right to your living room you know you you mentioned some of those consoles there during that time Uh, i had a friend uh, for christmas that he got i I think i think the name of the brand or the console was turbo graphic 16 yeah i've heard of that one i'm talking i have no idea what it is but i've seen the name yeah yeah uh, that was like uh, something magical had happened because he was talking (laughs) about you know how how much better the graphics were and and i think there 
there was a, a, a particular game that we really got addicted to that, that Christmas <laughs> break that we played, and it was called, uh, I think the name of it was Slaughterhouse. <laughs> I've heard of this game. You know what I'm talking I about? I do. You're like this, uh, like you're a serial killer, basically. Uh, Is yeah, that pretty it? much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been playing that. I don't know, but uh, I did. I like to think it didn't affect me too bad or anything yeah. like that. But, uh, yeah, so when you talk about sort of these uh, souped up, you know, for lack of a better term, oh, yeah. uh, consoles, uh, I, I specifically remember that one thinking this one is somehow unique and better. Yeah. Know? These were the consoles with 20-inch rims. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're right. Uh, so the arcade really couldn't compete with some of these consoles uh, during this time. And arcade video games had declined so much in popularity by the late, late 1990s that revenues fell, and I use the word fell very loosely here, <laughs> to $1.33 billion. <laughs> Uh, in 1999 in the United States. Arcade games reached a low in 2004 with revenues of $866 million. So not really competing at the $7 billion level they were looking at earlier. In fact, less than $1 billion. In the early 2000s, networked gaming via computers and consoles appeared, replacing the head-to-head competition and social atmosphere once provided exclusively by arcades. So for the first time, you could connect via the internet and actually play with your friend across the street or across the world. That's That was significant. That was a big deal. Big deal. Yeah. So to compensate for dwindling sales, arcades began adding more surface, uh, services such as you know merchandising games, the claw, food service, some of those things. And this leads us into the 2000s. So arcades are kind of on the ropes at this point. Jason, do they ever come back in the 2000s? They did a little. And, uh, or at least kind of had a mainstay, you know, I think. Uh, from 2000 to, two, to uh, 2010, arcades developed a little different look uh, as they began to have more games that featured individual physical skills mixed with electronic uh, gaming. So uh, I'm talking about games like a Dance Dance Revolution. So, Shannon, have you ever played that? Don't lie. Be honest. Uh, Again, I'm going to use the word played very loosely here. But, yeah, I've I've been on top of that machine making motions. (laughs) (laughs) I had that feeling. That's why I asked that question. (laughs) So, so, yeah. So, so dance. Are you implied I'm a a world-renowned dance champion? I don't know, but I would pay good money to see that video. (laughs) Oh, I'd pay good money to get on that machine and about kill myself. But, uh. (laughs) But that was, it it was games like that, you know, uh, and another one was, was drum mania. Uh, you know, the, so those games became very popular, and several like family center restaurants, like Dave and Buster's, Chuck E. Cheese, Gaddy's Pizza, uh, they really kept arcades at the forefront uh, of family entertainment by utilizing what is known as the uh, redemption. Uh, tickets or redemption games. Oh, yeah. and, and what I mean by that is basically you go in, you play the games, and you earn the tickets, right? right. You get the tickets, and then you can redeem those for, for prizes. Yeah. And, of course, uh, my kids to this day, they, they love that. They would take uh, – and nothing it's, – it's not a knock on Gaddy's. I love Gaddy's pizza. I absolutely love yeah, it. me too. But they would eat outdated cheese on cardboard <laughs> at that restaurant <laughs> as long as they got to go back in the back and play the arcade right, games right. Uh, and spend $17 to get a Twizzler. (laughs) They they absolutely love that. But really, that's kind of what arcades look like uh, during that decade is uh, there were were fewer of them. They were mostly connected with some other type of a 
an entity like a uh, a pizza place or maybe an amusement park right. or or something like that but they definitely gravitated more toward the redemption ticket type thing to get prizes and we were moving more away from like mortal Kombat being in these places and more toward like whack-a-mole that, <laughs> or that, something that's like right that. you know, th- yeah. things like that uh where you know you could uh you could really like improve your skills on certain things it, it wasn't just pushing buttons it was actually shooting a basketball sure. into a in, into the goal to get the tickets or it was you know things like the uh what's it called the 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 like the ice hockey table it's oh, uh, uh, air hockey air hockey yeah. yeah so things of that nature where you know you would be you know, you compete against the computer uh, with a physical skill that you were actually doing or against, you know, obviously another human player right. like an air hockey. But really the tickets is really what arcades hung their hat on during that time to kind of keep them afloat uh, from 20 or from 2000 to 2010. So how did they change moving forward from like 2010 until today? Well, in America, they've largely remained, as you mentioned, you know, just trying to have more of the physical sort of things like the Dance Dance Revolution, the Guitar Hero. That was really popular. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, that that came to home, home consoles as well. Yeah. Uh, we had the full setup with um, what's it called? Rock Band. Yeah. Oh, for yeah a little the, drum, the little the rubber drums. drums. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Man, that, that's a ton of fun. During the 2010s, you know, the American arcade pretty much continued to follow this formula of, you know, using these more physical physical games but where the arcade was still thriving was in japan actually so in present day japan uh, right up to this day arcades are still very popular they've remained profitable and the reasons include support in the region for continued innovation and the fact that developers of machines own the arcades so the people who are actually building Dance Dance Revolution are opening up their own arcades. They're not like two separate entities. And that's a draw for a lot sure, of people. You yeah. know, it's neat to, to see the guy who made some of these games just kind of standing over there handing out the, the Twizzler you paid 80 bucks for. <laughs> <laughs> right. What a deal. Uh, what, what, is, what a steal on that. Uh, Japan offers experiences in the arcade that are not available on home machines. They, they keep the tradition, uh, like you mentioned, of games that require interaction with larger machinery, things that aren't real practical to actually have as part of a a home console and the arcades in japan are multi-floor complexes jason they're they're not just you know a, a single level that you walk into like a lot of what i've seen here in america Sometimes they take up an entire building. They, they take their arcades very seriously over in Japan. On the ground level of these multi-tier arcade complexes, this is where you'll usually find the physically demanding games You know that draw the crowds in, such as the music rhythm games. The second floor is usually dedicated to multiplayer games with online leaderboards, and top players in Japanese culture are usually revered and respected very highly. This is... It's a big deal there. It's a big deal. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it has the equivalent clout of college sports or, or something like sure. that here uh, here in America. And the top floor of these places are usually where you go for the rewards and you can trade the credits or the tickets for the prizes. And this is how the arcade has continued to exist. I'm sure there's room for future innovations. We spent a whole episode talking about virtual reality. And I think going forward at some point, there might be a market for some some of these virtual reality experiences related to arcades. So that's one interesting way that we could go with this. So Jason, in reflecting on some of the uh, original arcades and even the the modern day arcades, obviously some stand out more than others in terms of fun, in terms of how much money they earn. So what can you tell us about the top 10 
arcade games. I think you have a list, and I intentionally didn't look at this because I'm <clears> curious <throat> to see what the top 10 arcade games are of all time. Well, Shannon, I love lists. <laughs> I love lists of anything. Yeah, you do. And we, we rank, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, ranked lists a lot uh, on our podcast. I go down the road driving sometimes. I'll just, you know, in my head, rank the top 10 whatever, top 10 yeah, restaurants, right. you know, uh, top 10 times that I have uh, probably deserved some kind of trophy for being a great husband, you know, <laughs> something along those lines. So I absolutely love lists. Yeah. So yeah. I do. I do have the top 10 highest grossing arcade games of all time in front of me. So are you ready? I'm preparing myself mentally and emotionally right now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. let's, let's do this. Okay. At number 10, Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong at number 10. We're going to talk more about Donkey Kong here in just a little bit. <laughs> I'm surprised it's not higher, actually. There's a really cool story you have coming oh, up. There's a, there's a great story. On Donkey Kong. <laughs> number nine, Mortal Kombat. Okay. Is that the first one? That's or the first one. Number 10, 11. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Number okay. eight on the list, Mortal Kombat 2. Oh, okay. So there you go. So it showed up to the party twice. That's right. Uh, number seven, good old Asteroids. Man, I'd forgot remember about Asteroids? that game. Yeah. I, I remember playing that uh, vaguely. Yeah, so number seven. I, I think there was a glitch in that game, and I don't know if it was ever patched or what, but there was a section of the screen where you could park your spaceship and just infinitely shoot, and nothing could ever touch you. It was just part of the programming of the game. For whatever reason, the Asteroids didn't fly there. That's right. <laughs> so uh, that's interesting. Cool. Good for I Asteroids. Guess, I guess that was kind of before the up, up, down, down side side type thing oh, for like man. extra men or whatever unlimited <laughs> life in certain games you're unlocking all the childhood memories <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's great checking in at number six we have defender okay and i know i was actually talking to you today about this game uh, not necessarily how it you know, made the list but just this game in general and this is one i couldn't really remember necessarily uh, yeah. but you had talked about it I, I had one of the atari 2600s and i never played the, that game defender on an actual arcade cabinet but i had it for the atari and you are a spaceship or in atari terms you are a right triangle <laughs> <laughs> that's located. Okay. Same difference in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're on the left side of the screen. You have to work your way toward the right side of the screen. There's stuff flying in. You're, you're shooting at it. It's a lot like Space Invaders, but just if you turned it 90 degrees. Okay, <laughs> well, I got Defender. you. All right. <laughs> yeah. uh, at number five, this one's a little bit different. NBA Jam. Really? Number five, NBA Jam. And I've played this a, a, a thousand times and, and loved it. I played it a bunch. That's that's surprising to me. Yeah, yeah, I would always like you know play that for like an hour, and then I would go like watch like an actual NBA game, and I remember thinking, <laughs> you know, well, up. well, he's not on fire, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just right. went over three from the three point yeah. line, you know. What well, remind me for the Chicago Bulls? Wasn't there a, a thing where Michael Jordan wasn't in that game, and that was a big deal at the time? It seems like at least on one of those editions, yeah, yeah I think it was like Scottie Pippen, and then maybe another player, right? But it wasn't Jordan. But yeah, I think there was on on some edition of that game. I think Jordan was in there, and I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure why that was, but that that was a big deal to a lot yeah. of people. If you can't play as Jordan, That's who, why, who can you be, Jason? Why, why are you playing <laughs> are here? You playing? That's right. Yeah. It's NBA Jam, not <laughs> NBA Playground Time. That's right. Number four, Miss Pac-Man. Okay. Number four Ms. all Pac-Man. time. Pac-Man. Yeah. Pac-Man with a bow on her hair. <laughs> Is it, was that the only difference? I never really played that game very much. <laughs> I just always remember looking at the bow on, on top of, you know, I think it's, I think Pac-Man's Pac-Man. That's it. <laughs> but but yeah. this was Miss Pac-Man. Miss Pac-Man. Okay. Gotcha. That's right. Uh, number three, Street Fighter 2. 
Street Fighter too. Yep. So that was one of the ones we mentioned that ushered in the resurgence back in right. the 90s. People and, love to punch other people. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. As long as it happened on the screen. That's right. right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, number two, one we had mentioned uh, earlier, Space Invaders. Okay, yeah, I have no gripes with that. I like Great space. Game. I like Space Invaders. Yeah, and number one all time, Pac Man. Pac Man. Pac Mania. Pac Mania. I remember for Christmas one year, uh, my parents bought me a a like a super tiny miniature Pac-Man arcade game and it was like it looked like the stand-up version yeah you know what I mean like the seven foot tall arcade but this was tiny I mean it was like probably maybe a foot tall Hmm. and like maybe eight inches wide and you had to kind of play it just with your fingertips you couldn't even put your hand like your whole you know hand around it yeah Uh, did it still take real quarters or uh, no it it, uh, just battery operated just battery operated yeah Yeah, but it I mean it looked just like the the original it was just scaled down you know several Several times smaller. Well, all I need to know when when Pac Man went across the screen, did he go waka 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 waka? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes it, it, it real. Made, it made the sound. Yeah, oh yeah. I, I I was happy. I just I walked around all day with that. You know, just uh, oh, that's great. Fired up about. I love it. that. Yeah. So with so many games, uh, Shannon, over the years, of course, I mean, we've talked about uh, obviously a top ten list. We've talked about going into arcades and tickets and just all kinds of things associated uh, with arcade games. So. I would like to hear a little bit about maybe a personal story you have or something that's kind of funny or you know, anything you got from your childhood dealing with arcade games. Sure. So growing up, one of the things that I enjoyed doing quite a bit was going to the local bar and grill. You, you may have heard this sometimes in discussions. I know you work with a lot of people who are from the area that I grew up in, and there was a place called Pat's Snack Bar. I've, <laughs> I've never been there, but I feel like I have. Yeah. I've heard many people talk about this place now that jason this was a place where when you ordered a cheeseburger the it would come out in a white bag and you could see the cheeseburger through <laughs> the bag the crease that just <laughs> annihilated the paper yeah. well, I, I considered that more of a feature of the restaurant you know they had these magic bags see-through bags would, right? yeah just kind of turn transparent when i bet, the cheeseburger came I bet they're out. so good oh man <laughs> They're so good. I've probably given up a year or two off the very end of my life. But, you know, time well spent. (laughs) Some good burgers, man. That's right. But, yeah, we would go in there, and it had all sorts of arcades. It had many of the ones you mentioned, Pac-Man, Galaga, which, which didn't show up on the list. But I love Galaga. I, I find that really interesting. Yeah. I do, too. I, I think Galaga is one of the, the more fun games that really yep. kind of holds up today. You could still sit down and sort of play a game of Galaga. You know, Galaga is a lot like Space Invaders, so maybe that was the thing. I don't know which one came first right. or, or how that worked. But, yeah, just kind of going in, watching the older kids play. I was kind of timid back then, Jason, and I was very young when I would go in there. And this was when arcades were still booming. And, yeah, this wasn't an arcade proper. You know, they, they had arcade machines, but primarily they were a bar and grill cheeseburger restaurant. But still, there were tons of teenagers who would come in there just to play the games. And I never really found a time that I was in there when someone wasn't playing the game. And I was kind of timid, so I never would go in and sort of drop my quarter in. <laughs> Put or, your quarter or, down. You know, pound my quarter <laughs> down. So they, they always got to play the fun games. You know, I'd right. see them playing Street Fighter 2. I'd see them playing the, the Mortal Kombat and all you're, that sort you're of thing. You're over in the corner playing Cubert. <laughs> I'm over here playing Wonder Boy. You know, <laughs> Wonder <it's> just, Boy. <laughs> 
paper boy. That's right, paper boy. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that that legitimately happened. But I was very entertained because I would kind of sit back and watch from the sidelines. You know, I didn't want them to catch me just full on staring at them or over their shoulder or something. <laughs> but, you know, from my seat, uh, we were sitting on these bar stools. I would just kind of peek over from time to time and kind of see what was going on. And one thing that always stuck out to me uh, was that on the game Street Fighter, of course, you can pick your character, and there's a variety of characters. There's a guy from America. Uh, there's a guy from the USSR. There's a guy from India and, and other places. Right. But the guy from the USSR, his name, and I still know it, is Zangief. And he's the huge, hulking, muscular wrestler. He's a bad man. <laughs> he's a bad man. <laughs> and what I never understood as I watched the older kids play is why they didn't just pick that guy and dominate. Because I always noticed, like, the other characters were smaller. And, and in my mind, that made perfect sense. It's like, man, that is a hulking beast of a dude. Why, why does no one <laughs> right. ever just pick him and just run over <laughs> all the right. other characters in the game? So you can just kind of see my my uh, young mind working here and trying to figure out how all that comes together but yeah that that was my big experience with arcades and uh you know i actually enjoyed them so much that two or three years ago i actually built an arcade cabinet and it is a very impressive feat that (laughs) was the 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 arcade cabinet that you have is incredible i mean it really is it's awesome oh man i appreciate you saying that it took some time I, i i will say i've i'd never worked with wood before I mean, I really hadn't. We we'd done a couple things in shop class when I was in high school. I think I built a, a you know a birdhouse that wasn't really fit for a living. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to recreate some of these childhood memories, and you know, went down to the local hardware store, grabbed some MDF, and you know, borrowed tools because I I just didn't have anything laying around, and uh, put this thing together, and it was a ton of fun. It's something that I can't wait for my daughters to get to use when they're a little bit older and enjoy some of these games. You know that we grew up playing. So you need to you need to take a picture of that and put on our uh, social media. That's a good accounts. idea. Yeah, because it, it's a very cool thing that that you literally just made this, and I think it has like <laughs> every video game that's ever been made and four that have not been made yet. <laughs> I, think it, I don't know what size of computers in that, but yeah. uh, there it has a lot of games. It sure does. Yeah, and yeah. it looks like professionally done. Oh man! I mean, I know you bought like the sticker package. <laughs> yeah, and everything we did. With it. It's incredible. Yeah, it's actually it's Space Invaders. Actually, yeah. it's what we've got on the side yep. there. It's a recreation of that. But it's a lot of fun and uh, definitely something that I cannot wait to pass down. So, Jason, do you, do you have any other personal stories about arcades? Anything that you've experienced over the years that was interesting? And you know, For me, I think it's just sort of the trip. I grew up in, in, a, in a small town you know, called Whitley City, Kentucky. And just north of us, about you know, 25, 30 miles, was a bigger town named uh, Somerset. And so they had an arcade there in the mall. And the name of the arcade was Pirate's Cove. All right. So it had a really cool name. That's perfect. That's perfect. So when I was in middle school, obviously my parents would take me from time to time and that type of thing. Uh, But when I was in high school and whenever we had friends who were old enough to drive, you know, every Friday night it was it was the same exact night is that we would drive up. We would get in the car, drive up to Somerset and we would first stop by Burger King. 
we would have our Whopper and our French fries. For me, it was a double order of fries. I know I don't. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a big burger person. I would have my double order of fries. Everyone would eat. We would then, you know, drive another hundred yards. We would go to the mall and we would go into Pirates Cove. And we probably had 15 pounds of quarters apiece. And we would go in and play. I mean, virtually all these games we've talked about here. We would play all these games, you know, and and, and obviously play some more. And it seemed like that we were in there for like maybe an hour, hour and a half. And then we would go watch a movie and then we would come back home. And that was pretty much every Friday night, like you know, when I was in high school, at least old enough to where I got uh, to where my mother would let me ride, you know, with with folks. Oh, yeah. So my childhood, when I think of arcades, I always think of a place called Pirate's Cove in, in Somerset Mall. I spent many hours there as a teenager and just just loved it. Just loved playing those games. That's awesome. Now, were there actual were there any pirates in there at all? Was there uh, a thematic pirate no, thing you know, going no, on? No, they, they just sort of had a, the, the face of a pirate like on the uh, the front of the store. You know, okay. when, when you walked in. Yeah. Uh, but no, outside of that, nothing I can really recall. You know, obviously <laughs> you could get tickets and you could trade them in and yeah. and uh, and that type of thing. But uh, no, outside of the name, just Pirates Cove. That, that no, was no it. parents. No, <laughs> there were there were no parents <laughs> flying around or anything like. But there were a lot of people that would come to to that specific arcade because I remember running into kids there from like different counties and oh, there would yeah. be people that would drive you know 30 minutes to an hour away to come to that arcade uh, it was a really big business for a few years and it really hurt my heart when I saw <laughs> it close uh, later on right uh, but yeah but when I when I was in high school I was all about Pirates Cove uh, in Somerset Kentucky there that's awesome man I, I love the local arcade feel I think that's something that we've sort of lost as the years have went on, just having that one particular place, because both of us were able to pick out the one place that right. we remember playing those games. And, and that was a ton of fun. So one thing that I wanted to share before we wrap up here is a story that I promised, uh, you know, a little bit earlier in the episode concerning uh, a game called Donkey Kong. It's one that I've played quite a few times. And if you haven't, this was the first outing of Mario. He wasn't called Mario back then. I think they called him Jumpman. I can't yeah, imagine why. Yeah, I think why. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but he would walk from the, the left side of the screen to the right. He would climb up ladders. All the while, there was this uh, huge gorilla at the top, Donkey Kong, who was throwing the barrels down. And it could be as simple as that. But unfortunately, it's not. <laughs> Because there's a whole culture, Jason, around the idea of chasing high scores on these older video games. It's still around today. I have heard of this underground culture (laughs) of of which you speak. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. So there's a documentary on this called The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. That's an awesome name. (laughs) It's just perfect. It's wonderful. So in this 2007 documentary film uh, about competitive gaming directed by Seth Gordon, uh, the film follows a real-life person named Steve Wiebe as he attempts to take the high score recorded for the 1981 arcade game Donkey Kong from the previous holder whose name is Billy Mitchell. And I know this is a documentary. These are real life people, but they're almost like caricatures the way the documentary plays out. Billy Mitchell, if you can just imagine, he has this long, black, greasy like hair. He has it slicked back and he has a, a goatee. He's a tall guy, and he he always sort of dresses up. He's also a restaurant owner, owner, and he always wears a um, an American flag tie. And okay, he, he's just hilarious the entire time. Uh, he he's the original guy who had the the Donkey Kong record. And if you're wondering, well, who kind of keeps score here? Who keeps track? 
of who has these high right. scores. Like who actually verifies this. Right, who yeah. verifies it. You know, how does this get tabulated? And this man named Walter Day founded a company called Twin Galaxies, and it is the organization that's dedicated to tracking high scores in arcade games. And you can find them online. You just go to Twin Galaxies, and uh, all those high scores will come up. If you're curious, if you've got a weekend free and you want to go see if you can be the high scorer on uh, on Dig Dug. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> uh, so among the high scoring players is Billy Mitchell, the man we just described. Steve Wiebe, a former engineer turned science teacher, purchases a Donkey Kong arcade cabinet and begins practicing in his garage to beat Billy Mitchell's high score. So it's it's awesome. In the documentary, he brings in this huge cabinet, uh, takes it downstairs, and he's actually drawing on the screen. He's sort of using his engineering background to you know write down the angles on the actual screen of when he can move, when he can jump, and he's sort of, he's very calculated. Oh, wow. And you can tell there's a lot going on under the hood in, in him trying to beat this world record. And he does it. He, he achieves a new record of 1,006,600 points. This was the first time ever that anyone on any machine uh, of Donkey Kong had scored over a million points. Uh, or at least in a verifiable man, uh, manner. Now, Twin Galaxies accepts world record attempts in two different ways. You can either perform live and actually have one of their judges watch you and see how you did and, and confirm that it happened, or you can send in a videotape. And, you know, that's that's interesting as well. In the documentary, they have one of their referees and he's sitting in his apartment and there's just a box full of these VHS <laughs> tapes. And uh, he said, I, I know how I'm going to spend my weekend. And, and he's just sitting on the edge of his bed. And I'm just watching his apartment, watching folks play games. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he commented. He says, I see world records broken every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. So Steve submits this tape to Twin Galaxies for verification of the new record. And Billy Mitchell actually serves as a spokesperson for Twin Galaxies. And he sends two referees to investigate Steve's Donkey Kong machine. Now, as we mentioned, Billy Mitchell owns the world record. Right. And he's also the referee. This is personal. <laughs> this is personal, right? So the referees, when they, they go in, and the, the documentary depicts that they waited till Steve wasn't home and asked his wife, uh, who was home, if they could come in and look at his Donkey Kong machine. And they actually enter into the garage, and they start taking this thing apart. They, they do more than look at it. They actually go in to look at the, the board and, and all things about it. And the referees learn that the circuit board for Steve's Donkey Kong machine was provided by a man named Roy Schilt, who is, and I, I say this <laughs> with a straight face mostly, but he was an enemy of Billy Mitchell. Okay. So, and uh, this person, Roy Schilt, held the high score for a game called Missile Command. Okay, right, so I have heard of that game. You see the web is deepening here. We've got that's all these right. players. This so, is cutthroat right that's here. Right. So to recap, we got Billy Mitchell, who is the current world record holder, also a spokesperson and referee. We've got Steve Wiebe, the contender, who is who seemingly submitted, has, right. yeah, who, who seemingly has broken the record. And we have this Roy Schilt, who is an enemy of Billy Mitchell, but who has given Steve Wiebe you know, a Donkey Kong board to play on. And and the story here would go that, well, Roy gave that to him so Steve could beat Billy Mitchell's record, you know, because they're enemies. Well, why are they enemies? 
apparently the same thing happened with with Roy Shield. Billy Mitchell kind of called his record to task and had it stripped away from him. And it's kind of a sad story. You can go on YouTube and, and hear Roy Shield talking about this. And he's kind of a comical character as well. So a lot of these guys are. They're almost like I said, like caricatures. But Twin Galaxies uh, suspected that Shield may have tampered with Weeby's board uh, to help him achieve the high score. So the high score is non-awarded. So this is the the first strike, basically. So Steve Weeby doesn't get the, the score, but they do invite him to come down and perform live so that, you know, they can see it in person. They said, well, we, we can't use the record set on your machine because we suspect that it's been tampered with. And we also destroyed it. And we also <laughs> we also sent our uh, men in with crowbars to, to tear it apart <laughs> right. and burn it. Uh, no, which they didn't actually do that. Uh, but Steve travels to an arcade in Laconia, New Hampshire. And I think it's actually called Fun Spot. So right in line with some of these, okay. you know, <laughs> arcade names uh, to attempt to set a new high score in person. And Steve invites Billy Mitchell. He says, you know, come on down. Let's compete head to head and let's see who really is the best Donkey Kong player ever. Well, of course, Billy's busy that day. Right. <laughs> so he doesn't come. He doesn't show up. Uh, Steve does set a new high score. It's not quite as high as the one that he set on the videotape. Uh, it's 985,600 points, so just a little bit shy of the, the 1 million plus that he set previously. Billy Mitchell immediately reclaims the record, you know, just right after. And here's one thing you have to understand about Billy Mitchell. All during this time, he's saying things like, if you can't set a record live, then you didn't do it. So, you know, Steve Weeby comes down to set it live. All these qualifiers, making sure. Yeah, making right. sure. So so he invites Billy. He says, you come down and do it. Here, here's how it goes down, though. Steve sets this new record live, and then Billy Mitchell sends in a low-quality VHS tape of him achieving 1,047,200 points <laughs> on Donkey Kong. This is the guy who was championing live performances, and, right. and tapes don't count. And immediately i mean as soon as steve sets this record there's someone in the audience who is like i've got something to show everybody <laughs> I mean, man it's that's convenient, convenient. Yeah, yeah oh my gosh yeah. so literally they they pull out this uh, old crt you know uh, monitor and they they set up a, a vhs player they pop this tape in it's staticky you know uh, especially in the upper left corner where the score is it kind of looks like uh, do you remember like tracking on vcrs how they had, it <laughs> oh, would yeah, have all this yeah. static in them. Well, that's what was going on there. And it's so bizarre. You, you can see the score, uh, but when it moves, there's a bunch of that static over top of it in the upper left corner, almost as if it's been tampered with, right. as if there's been some splicing going on or or perhaps Billy's not playing on real equipment. You know, he's playing on a, something they call emulation, which is like a computer program that runs the, the arcade game and that sort of thing. Billy reclaims his championship of Donkey Kong. But Walter Day invites Steve to submit taped high scores again to Twin Galaxies for verification. He said, you know what? You came down to New Hampshire. We want to be fair to you. Obviously, you can play Donkey Kong well, so you can go ahead and send us tapes again. A little bit of time passes, and then eventually at home, Steve Wiebe achieves a new high score. He beats Billy Mitchell finally with a score of 1,049,100 points. And that's the end of that story. <laughs> wow. Now, I think there have been other high score contenders since then. I don't think either Steve Wiebe or Billy Mitchell are still in the running because once this 
became a little bit more public knowledge and the culture started expanding a bit, other people said, you know what, I can play Donkey Kong. <laughs> and they sat down <laughs> right. and, they, and they, they played some Donkey Kong and uh, achieved some higher scores. So I, I found that really interesting. I enjoy that documentary thoroughly. I'd encourage anybody to, to watch it if you want to get a sense for how this high scoring culture of arcade games uh, has been over the years. But it's called A King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. That's really cool. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I got really excited if I got to like level three of Contra. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with that oh, game. Man. That's a tough game. Uh, I, I played Contra. Yeah. So like I would do a dance if I got like a thousand points or whatever. So it's <laughs> awesome. I, I'm certainly not a, a world record holder of any video game that <laughs> to my knowledge. That's it. That's it. Well, Jason, that's all the content I have here. Do you have anything else to say about arcade games? Shannon, probably not. I think the sooner we wrap up, the sooner I can uh, get home and play some Asteroids. <laughs> that's awesome. We'll find that corner because I'm telling you, there's <laughs> there's a high score in there for you. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners because we recently reached a milestone. We have 2,500 downloads of the podcast. That's pretty cool. It's exciting. That's very cool. So thank you to everyone who is following the podcast. Thank you for subscribing, rating, and leaving a review. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle at slapdash pod. And coming up here in a future episode, we're going to be discussing the science of time travel. Very excited about that as we get ready to complete the year here with our episode on the history of arcades and look forward to another great year of podcasting. Thanks again for listening and take care. Take care, everyone. 